in every crisis, there is opportunity. Certainly entrepreneurs and smart business people uh, over the last uh, decades and centuries have proven that to be true. Uh, Robert Maynard is no different. He is one of the founders and uh, co-owners of Famous Toastery. It is a chain of high-end breakfast spots uh, all across the Carolinas and Virginia. I had the great fortune of sitting down with him just a few weeks ago. I'm thrilled to be able to bring you my interview with him. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Now, usually I do a monologue format here on the show where we choose a topic, we then pick that topic apart, but then from time to time I host interviews with restaurant professionals uh, to see what it is they're doing that we can learn from uh, and to better understand the issues that uh, that actually plague all of us. So uh, this week I'm joined by Robert Maynard, one of the co-owners of Famous Toastery, a chain of restaurants that started down in North Carolina and has since spread up and down the East Coast. Uh, Robert, welcome to the show. Chip, thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be sitting down with you. Um, so right now you are in North Carolina? That is correct. And I am recording this from my office here in Brooklyn. Uh, for the past 18 years, New York has been my home, but you're actually a native New Yorker. Am I wrong? That's, that's right. No, I spent um, up until 14. I was in Manhattan for about 20 years. And before that, uh, a little town known as the Bronx and Long Island. So I know, uh, know New York pretty well. Excellent. And then it, was, uh, then it was the restaurant industry that brought you down to North Carolina, right? That's right. If you would have, if you would have said to me ten years ago you'd be living in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, after living in Manhattan for so many years, I would have told you crazy. But it is the, the one of the best things I've ever done for myself, for the family, and and you know even for the business. So then, so then let's get into that. Um, talk a little bit about. So what is Famous Toastery, and then I want to use that to talk about um, about your involvement, um, how you got involved, and like you said, you know it was a uh, it was a big shift to go uh, all the way down there. But I want to know. Um, I want to know what brought you down there, what your experience is. So, so talk a little bit about the uh, about the restaurant. So Famous Toastery is a higher-end breakfast, lunch, brunch concept, right? Everything's made to order. Best way to say it, it's the antithesis of the greasy spoon. What you remember growing up, getting the burger deluxe at four in the morning, it's the polar opposite. We have no fried food. Everything's made to order. We roast our own turkey, make our own corned beef hash, make our own potatoes, make every omelet in a pan. It's... Um, it's quite a cool thing to do and to be able to bring to a town like um, you know, starting in, in Charlotte. As you know, living in New York, there's great breakfast everywhere. There's great food everywhere. So you, you think it's just a foregone conclusion that it's going to be the same everywhere you go. And um, we, we noticed that it wasn't, and we wanted to fill that void. And, uh, and, 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 and so we did, not very rapidly, but over X amount of, you know, X amount of time, and have been very excited and happy about what we've been able to produce. So... That was what brought you down there. So, so talk to me because you have a uh, you have a partner, right? The the co-owner. His name is Brian Burchill. He is so we went to. Well, I've known Brian since I was nine years old. Um, the the story goes, and it's not a myth. He it was in the restaurant business, worked in a lot of places in New York City, 
know, ran a lot of cool restaurants, nightclubs, breakfast spots, and had a, you know, his, his dream was to run a restaurant and own a restaurant, I should say. And at the time I was in the real estate business. I was working in banking, um, living in Manhattan. And Brian called me up and said, Hey, you know, I'm really, uh, I'm ready to do this restaurant thing. I think I, I, I have some cool spots that I'd love to show you interested in investing in the restaurant business. And I said to him, bleep no, I'm going to let you fill in the bleep. <laughs> and I said, why, why in God's name would you want to do that? You know, why would you ask me to do that? It's crazy. And I don't know anything about this stuff. Yeah, I worked in a bar. I served some beer, right? I mean, what, what do I know? Anyway, he sends me a round trip ticket, a place to stay, and a car for three days. I go to North Carolina. On the third day, we have a down payment on an existing restaurant. <laughs> 30 days later, we own a restaurant. And now I'm the proud owner of a breakfast restaurant um, living in New York and having Brian run it uh, out of Charlotte because he lived there at the time and he still does. So that was my foray into uh, restaurant ownership. So talk about uh, jumping in you know, head first. It was, um, it was a quintessential jumping off the, uh, the cliff there. Yeah, so then let's talk about what happened over the course of those three days that changed your mind so quickly. You know, that is, Chip, that's a great question. You know, I talked to a lot of different people and no one's ever asked that. I was, I remember, I remember going to a, a restaurant while I was there. It was a breakfast place. I walked in. Number one, I'm, I met with smoke, right? Everybody's smoking. So I'm like, wow, this is insanity. The food was horrendous. We couldn't get a good breakfast. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I see where, where Brian works. I mean, there's been some really great spots. And we got, I'm like, we can really bring that experience and food quality here, it's like, you know, unfair advantage. So that's what was my little aha moment. You know, going into this restaurant, to have a meeting before we bought this restaurant, saying this is pretty bad, right? Um, and a very bad experience. I don't smoke, I didn't smoke at the time. Um, so it was just a very weird experience for me. And I'm like, we can really do this right. You know, when someone says, an avocado omelet, we actually cut a fresh avocado, a Haas avocado, and put it in your omelet, not squeeze a five-pound frozen bag of guacamole. So that was my personal aha moment saying, you know what? This can really work. Now, what else did I know about it? A big fat zero, right? I know, nothing else. I mean, it was just kind of like, yeah, it's, you know, which is, which is kind of the fascinating thing about life and about business is because you can't know it all. You can go to school all, all for 15 years, get a degree and whatever. You're never going to know until you get into the get into the uh, batter's box and swing the bat. And whether you you know strike out, bunt, hit a base, whatever, you got to get in the um, you got to get in the batter's box and swing at it. And that's kind of where my where my head was at the time. So then, so you decide to buy the restaurant. You get started. Then talk to me uh, if you can think back this far. So then. What was the first six months like? What was the first year like? You know, how did that go? What went to plan? What didn't go to plan? You know, what were the what were the things that you learned uh, real fast? Well, the the great thing was one of the things I forgot to mention is this place wasn't open on the weekends. So, uh, as anybody knows in the restaurant business, for breakfast, your Saturdays and Sundays are your big days, right? So they weren't open on the weekends. So just by default, we knew we we had a leg up going into this. They were open Monday through Friday. And we knew that if we just opened Saturday, Sunday and served a much better experience. Now, look in the room. This was a good place. It had good food. It was run by a great guy. We just elevated it. And we were able to elevate it so quickly that, you know, we went from doing, I think that, I think they were averaging, I forget now, right? It's been so long, you know, 
polling like 100 people a week or something, something ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, you know, with NX amount of time, we were doing five, you know, 400 people on just on a Saturday, you know, in, in this tiny little house. It was a tiny little 44-seat restaurant with an outside space. So as you know, at a certain point, you can use the outside space. But we, we knew we had something interesting. We knew we had something that was worth you know, going, hey, this is kind of cool. It's more than just a, hey, we'll see what happens. At that point, I'm like, this is actually pretty cool. But still, I just rode the wave, right? We, we weren't drinking the Kool-Aid. We weren't like, oh, this is the best thing since sliced bread. It's breakfast served really well with good food. And that's kind of, that was kind of the the, the starting of the, ooh, wonder what this can be, be like in a couple of years. Yeah, so, you know, what I love about this is that, you know, one of the things that I try to talk about uh, so often here on this show to the listeners is this idea of positioning, right? Is that really understanding your market and finding, uh, defining a position uh, for your place. And, and everyone has one. Um, either by default or whatever, because the the consumer uh, supplies the position. They they decide. You know, if you don't tell them how to think about you, they're going to think about you in a certain way. Which is why I think marketing and positioning is is so important. Uh, but you guys identified. You said, okay, there are a lot of breakfast places, but no, uh, but none of them that are you know a step above. You know, the, this higher end. And you said, okay, we're going to go in there. We're going to provide this. You know the kind of experience that you found so often in New York. And you said, well, we're going to own that position. It's going to be maybe a little bit more expensive. It's going to take a little bit more time. Um, but for the people who want that, uh, we're making a bet. And we're going to say, I think there's an audience for that. And the bet paid off. Yeah. And, you and, and you know, what, what you battle in that whole piece is if you're used to a three ninety nine breakfast and you come in there and at the time, you know, the prices were not what they are today, but let's call it was, payload was nine ninety nine. The breakfast and people would be, you know, be like, "Oh, this is just too much and this is expensive." Yeah, that's right. It's expensive. This is this is what we do. It's not for all people. All, we we you can't create something for all people, right? You have a very you have you have a specific clientele that's willing to pay the price. That's willing to say, you know what? I really enjoy having higher end coffee, you know, cappuccino, espresso, really good, you know, cage free eggs, etc. And there's a price that comes with it. Yeah. And when someone says it's too expensive, I don't come. You go, well, thank you so much for trying us. Maybe I'll see you around. Like, it is what it is, right? You, there's too many times where people are like, oh, wow, I, I need to lower my prices. People aren't going to come in. You've got to own what you're doing. you got to go all in and pick a side. Because if you don't, other people will, right? And they'll get to dictate what you're going to do. Yeah, that's the key. I, I love that. I, I love that you just said that because it's something that um, it, it's hard to wrap your head around, right? I mean, I always say, you know, so I, I run a, a marketing agency here in the city and I work with, uh, you know, all these restaurant clients. And it's one of the first things I ask. I say, you know, who's your restaurant for? And I say, and don't say everyone. And it's the first argument we have. They said, but but it is for everyone. Everyone would like this. I said, yeah, that may be so, but it, it's not for everyone. I said, you know, and I always give the, the example. I say there are, eight, you know, like 8 billion people on the planet most of them have never heard of you because they're not by you. They can't get to you. They don't speak the language. They don't like your food or they can't afford it just because the, you know, the world is varied when it comes to income. They can't afford necessarily a $42 steak, a $52 steak. So it's not for everyone. And you have to define that, you know, based on the, the vibe, right? It's, right. I always tell the story about how there was this one place uh, I was working with uh, last year. Uh, it was like a Greek steakhouse. I said, it's dark. It's clubby. It's not for, you know baby boomers it's not for retirees uh, because they're not going to want to sit in the dark and listen to loud thumping music right he's like well yeah i guess so and i said so great so right off the bat we can already define that it's not for those people 
um, that just by defining uh, who the product is not for, uh, you start figuring out who the product is for. And, um, you know, just by providing, you know, better quality experience, that just raises the price by default. And that starts defining who uh, who this product might be for. 100%. I mean, you, you, you can't put stuff in the wrong places, right? You can't expect to go, oh, I'm going to get really, really cheap rent, but I'm going to pay, you know, but I'm going to be looking for a higher end experience. I mean, you, when you want to put a, a, a nicer breakfast spot in, let's say, and you want it, you know, it's going to be fresh and all, all the buzzwords, you got to go into, you know, a higher income area or, you know, middle to high income. You can't expect to go into an area that, yeah, the rent's really cheap, but you're in the back of the building and no one can see it. I mean, it's the demographic that's going to pay for your services and expect certain things from that, right? Like you just said with, with, with Steakhouse. I mean, if you're hearing thumping music, you know, it's it's not the, you know, the, the, the young couple with two kids, they don't want to, they don't want to deal with that. Right. Yep. It's a very specific you know, audience and you got to know your audience because you'll get defined. You either get defined or you be the definer. Right. That's exactly it. You, you get to, you get to say, this is what we do. This is who we are. This is how I can make you happy if you are in this group. So come and check us out. But when you don't go and make those decisions, they get made for you. Everything's made, decisions are made every day, whether you want to make them or somebody else wants to make them. That's the thing, right? Is that 90% of the marketing is done behind your backs when you're not in the room. And the marketing you do do uh, just helps supply them with the answers. It provides vocabulary uh, so that people know how to talk about you. It's how you want them to talk about you. You know, one of the things in the restaurant business, not being a chef, not being a quote unquote restaurant guy, I am now, it's been many years, right? But I always looked at the bottom line. I always looked at um, profitability, right? So over the years, I've looked at P&Ls in different ways, right? So right now, there's a thing that I like to call, you know, a P&L, which, which is politics and loss, <laughs> right? Because we have politicians do, doing crazy stuff. Then you also have the other P&L, which is passion and loss, right? Where you have this passion to run a restaurant, this passion to want to do X amount of things, and you get lost in the weeds of here's the basic thing, right? Just like you have to eat, you have to you know, have shelter, <laughs> the basic needs, you have to make money. And if you don't find a path to that, that can be a problem. And if you don't open your eyes to that, that could be a problem. And it starts with your food, your marketing, who your audience is, how you're going to get to them, et cetera, right? It's just some basic stuff that you see get lost because it's a passion-driven business, uh, let alone you know, someone who starts a plastics company. Yeah. I don't know. Do you want to be in a, in a factory that smells real bad all day? But I'll tell you one thing, someone that I know is a plastics factory makes a hell of a living. We get too caught up in the restaurant business of the passion side. And I see where, where a lot of people can make some real quick pickups is understanding the difference between passion and loss, profit and loss, et cetera. Yeah. Well, you know, so much about... Um you know, business, you know, there's two different ways to market either, you know, you come up with a product and then you try to figure out who might want that product or the more successful way. And it sounds like this is the way that you guys went. You figure out a need, right? You figure out who's got a problem and then you try to solve that problem. And so it seems like what you guys did is you went and looked at the the market there in Charlotte and said, you know what? I don't think there's a high end or a higher end, a more elevated breakfast experience. And I think we can provide that to them, right? So you saw a problem, you saw an opening in the market, and then you try to deliver on that and most successful marketing uh, I found um, comes from that and unfortunately uh, the restaurant industry is just littered with corpses uh, because businesses are built the other way right a chef goes well I want to open my own restaurant well, well why 
what do you want? I, I want to get to cook my food. Is it, does anyone want your food? Is there an opening? Is there a, is there a need for your food? Which is where you get into that that danger of you know passion and loss, rather than stopping and looking at the opportunity. You know, looking at the problem and then figuring out a way to solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, to, to go a little even a step further, I mean, what I see a lot because I get a lot of calls from a lot of restaurants and that you know that want help or they need to get out or where something's going on. And I'm amazed at how many people are in these businesses where they could be chef driven. Let's call it. it doesn't even have to be chef driven. Just someone always wanted to do it. But you know, your core pieces, right? You know, are, you know, managing food costs, managing labor. If you can manage those two, and you have decent service and decent food, you'll be okay. Right now, if you have great food, great service, you know, you're off to the races. But that's where most of the people get bogged down too, is like this, the stuff that's not sexy. Who wants to talk about labor? I want to talk about this sizzling, beautiful steak I'm going to make you on Friday night with an, with, a, with an $18 martini. That's sexy. Right. The problem is one of the big problems that I see with restaurants too, is that it's just, it's got, it's, it's sexy. I know the bartender, I know the owner. Again, it goes back to the plastics company. No offense to the plastics. We use it every day. But we get caught up in that. And you have to keep your eye on the bottom line because if not, the bottom line will just eat you up. Right? And, I, and I say that a lot because I see it. Right? And in restaurants, it can, it, can go so, it, can, it can change so quickly. You can go from making 10000 a month to, you know what, my, my kitchen's a little busy. I'm going to hire an extra guy. That extra guy costs you 5000 And then you got another guy you know, looking around the floor all of a sudden. You went to nine thousand, and all of a sudden your profit's a thousand bucks a month. Yeah, just like that, right? It it it's it, it, almost like you have to be on top of that on a daily basis because restaurants are like these long tentacles. There's it, multiple streams of issues, not multiple streams of income. There's one way to make money: you get your food, and you know, people people buy your food. But there's lots of ways to lose money. I've spent twenty years in the restaurant industry, and I and I've seen people discover uh, all of the ways to to lose money. And you're right; there's only there's only one way to make money. Um, so I love this that you started this uh, from uh, from this place of like service. You saw an opening and decided to fill the to fill the opening. So then you do that, and you said just by nature, you guys opened up Saturday and Sunday, and you're providing a better product than what existed before. And you said you were kind of off to the races, right? It was it was kind of you know humming along right from the beginning am i am i painting that uh, incorrectly yeah i think that that's where you know I, I, the it, it was humming along it was doing well i wasn't only it wasn't even all that involved you know i'd come up every eight weeks to come and check on stuff and it wasn't until i think 2011 that we decided that we were going to um i'm sorry 2008 that we decided we'd open up another one right so you know it took some time to to say okay we're now ready to do some more stuff. And even then, it was never meant to be multiple locations, right? When 2011 and then 2012, we started opening more corporate stores at the time, that's when we started to see everybody coming out of the woodwork, say, hey, can I put one here? Can I put one there? Can I have one here? Because they were doing well. They were successful. They were filling the need. You know, I mean, look, let's be honest, though. Today, a lot of needs have been filled, right? This better breakfast craze is the one that hasn't been, there's still a little bit of white space. There's, not, there's competitors, but they don't have competitors like you do in a McDonald's or, or you know, or these big, big companies. But there's a race to it, right? And, and you have to differentiate yourself even more now than we did back then, because there's, you know, just like the burger business, right? There was the better burger, the better, better burger, and the better, 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 better burger, and you can just go on and on and yeah. on, right? And at some point, it just becomes, okay, we're done, right? And and, and things just, you know. Things just, you can't just keep building on the same thing. 
So the, the positive thing about that is it's just white space still available. Yeah. So then, because I don't want to, so you just said a couple of really important things and I just want to, I want to stick a pin in one of them and I want to go back a little bit. So you said that, you know, it's even more, you know, it's an even noisier market now for lack of a better term. Um, and you've got to differentiate yourself in new ways. So I want to stick a pin in that and make sure we come back to it. But I want to go back and make sure not to gloss over. So you opened this place in what, 2004, you said, right? 2005, the first one. Right. So 2005. And then uh, you sit on that for a couple of years before you open additional locations. Um, but then between like 2008 and 2011 or 12, where you really started growing. So so what happened there? What led to... Uh, the, the broad expansion that, that we now know. Can you talk a little bit about that time? You, you know, you, you, you start these restaurants, you, you know, it's not, you know, it's not easy to just make money in restaurants. We felt that we've, we found the secret sauce. We had great reviews. We had lines out the door, not a lot of competition. And we started to see that, Hey, this, this is something special, right? It's not your, it, it's not your average breakfast spot. And even with the noise that's around, you know, fast forward to today, it still has its differentiators, which is what's really important. But that's what that's what kind of got us motivated and say, hey, we can do this. We can we can expand it. And then when people were coming to us to do it, we never wanted to go to franchising. You know, back in the day, you thought that was just the F word. Right. But you started to see that there, if you wanted to do some expansion and you wanted to create a, a brand that was bigger than you expected and be able to bring this to A, people to run it as an opportunity for themselves and for other people to experience the brand um, in other areas. That was the way to do it, right? That was, um, that's what we saw as the, the kickoff. And again, we never went all in. We never went and did, um, like in the franchise business, you do lead generation. We never did any of that. It was all from people that came into the restaurant that just liked the experience. They said, oh, you guys franchise? Oh, okay. And, and that's how that kind of took off. Yeah. So, how many locations did you guys eventually grow to before you uh, before you started franchising? Well, we had at the time when we started to actually hit the franchise button, we had three locations. Okay. So, and what about that? Was it just that you just saw an opportunity? You just said we can't grow. We certainly can't grow in to that level without franchising. Or did you just see like what was it that that really made you click over onto that track? Well, I would love to say that we were just these smart people that were like, we have a plan. <laughs> but here's the deal. You had people calling you that wanted to open up locations, landlords that wanted to cut deals. Because at the time, the, the real estate market was like people were just dying to put people in places, right? Right. And we were seeing this opportunity then going, all right, well, people want to open up these stores. Landlords want to give us you know, lots of tenant improvement allowance and free rent to give us a big you know, runway, especially in these second generation spots. Hey, I heard about this franchise thing. Let's look into that. And that's kind of how it went. You know, it's again, it goes back to just what I said before, just getting in, you know, getting into the game, right? You got to be in it to either win it or lose it, right? You got to be in it. You got to swing it back. You got to do something. And that's how it started. We're just kind of like, okay, let's look in franchising. And then we met with some franchise attorneys, there was some franchise consultants, and then of course it just kind of snowballed into we're gonna franchise. Right. So you backed into the restaurant industry, and then you backed into franchising. And uh, now, I mean, it's it's grown exponentially just in the last, what, you started franchising in 2013? Actually, 14. We, we started the, the idea of, like, we, we did the documents in 13, but we didn't, we opened our first franchise location in 14. Yeah. So then, so then talk a little bit about that. So then, you know, because that's, I guess, firmly where you guys are now. You're in the, the franchise phase of, of this company. 
Right. And so we so we started opening franchise stores, and um, again, you know, you didn't know what you didn't know. We and we were clear when we did that. <clears throat> With this first couple of people that signed on, it wasn't like they had a big training team or had this. We had all this massive data. No, we were just like, okay, this is how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> and you just kind of, you, you just, you know, you you went as you as you go, right? You just you figured it out. I mean, that's the the biggest thing to take away from all this. And even when I talk about it myself, it's like sometimes I can't believe what we did and how we did it. You just kind of like, well, all right, let's do it, right? Because now, like you just said, I backed into restaurants, I backed into franchise. It's almost like I have no choice now to stay in this because I just know too much, right? right? You know a lot more of what not to do and a lot more of what to do. And that's what makes it exciting now, even through things like this crazy word called COVID, right? I mean, people think it's the end of the world. I mean, yeah, it's definitely put a pause on a lot of things, but you also have to take this opportunity and say, there is a massive amount of opportunity and a lot of damage and an enormous amount of damage. And we've all experienced it. But as we sit today, there's we're net negative on restaurants. Yeah, It couldn't be a better time to be looking in the restaurant business, no matter what industry you're in and or doubling down on marketing because there's just not as many people running with open restaurants than there were in January. So then what, um, so, you know, I want to go back to that pin that we stuck in there. So you have to, you know, differentiate yourself uh, even more now. How have you continued to define uh, or how has the, the concept evolved uh, in the in the years since you first opened, you know, how have you continued to differentiate yourself uh, within all these different markets, especially as you're going into all these new towns and cities? Well, you know, there's a lot of a, a lot of a lot of little things. So we do fresh food made fast, right? So we don't do fast food. That's just your typical fast food. We make fresh food fast. Our service is also we trademarked it. It's every server is your your server, which basically means everybody who works in that restaurant works at everybody sitting down. There's no such thing as, can I get more coffee? Oh yeah, let me get your server. That doesn't work that way. It's a team effort so that the service is really amazing. Yeah. When it works, it's amazing, right? That differentiates. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of groups don't want to do that, don't want to train that because it is much harder. It's not normal. Most people in that business don't want to have the shared model. It is a eat what you kill, you, keep, you know, the tips and all that kind of stuff. But we feel that it is, if you can create team and you can create a group that we're uh, that we're all in this together. It makes everyone's lives easier, right? And the service better, and people happier, and people make more tips. Everyone's happy, right? And we have the one thing we have never done, and we refuse to do. And I'll admit, we probably can shave off another point on our food, but we refuse to cheapen the food. We've always been doing fresh. I love to go hook toe to toe any of our competitors. I know that's where we win. That's where I know we win especially competitors in my in, in where we compete on a daily basis, right? So we don't go that route. No, can I get cheaper potatoes? Yes. Are they going to taste as good? No. Right. Can I get uh, a different type of bacon? Sure. But I buy the best bacon you can get because people realize that. Going back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, there's a certain – if you're charging X, people expect X. If you're going to a Waffle House, which does great at what they do, you can't expect black label hormel bacon at a Waffle House. You just can't. Right. So you you have to keep your differentiators, double down on your differentiators, uh, and then you know come up with new ones, right? Because people are people are evolving every day. Like you're not the only game in town. You know, it's because we do a really good job. We're not the only game in town, and, and you're not just competing with breakfast in my business. I'm competing with a guy who's doing burgers or a guy that's doing um, Mexican, whatever, right? Because you're especially at lunchtime, we sell a lot of lunch. Yeah. You just 
got to keep having the competitive edge and you can't let your, your guard down because once you let your guard down the next guy comes and takes over and if he wins he should win because you need to always be testing yourself your staff and your concept make sure that you're giving you the best experience you possibly can that's your job right at the end of the day your job is not just to open the doors and get have people come in your job is to create something where people keep wanting to come in because there's the next guy that's looking to, to, to do just what you're doing and do it better, right? And I believe that if they do it better and they win, good for them. Yeah, this is this is so good. So, so now we're 15, 16 years into your career as a restaurateur. And how much of this um, did you did you know when you started? How much of this was like? How many of these ingredients did you have and you knew they had to go into the recipe? And how much have you just picked up over the course of a while? Because it seems like you got a pretty fleshed out uh, idea, like a, a vision for, you know, for what makes restaurants work, for, for what makes them profitable, uh, for what your restaurant is all about and how you differentiate yourself and, and how you provide great service. But, but how much of that was there in the beginning and how much of that uh, was just, you know, picked up along the way? I didn't know a damn thing about this stuff when we first started, right? I knew real estate, I knew banking, I knew you needed to make money. All the other idiosyncrasies, I had really not much of an idea. To be honest, right, I'd love to sit here and say I was just this guy that really you know, had it all buttoned up, but you know, you, I come from the background of you gotta, you gotta go out there and just do it, right? You know, even when we started in the, in the real estate business, you know, I didn't want my first place, I had no idea what I was in for, and I learned by doing, right? The same thing here, but I also dove into it. I spoke with lots of different people. I went to conferences. I went to uh, re- restaurant shows, restaurant conferences, talked with other people. I try to educate myself very quickly because that's what you, 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 we can all pick up books. We can all learn from other people. We can all learn. There's so much information out there. So I started digging, knowing that I didn't know what I didn't know, right? But you also got to be clear of that. You can't walk into these businesses and think you know it all, right? Yeah. I learn something new every day. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out X, Y, and Z and how certain things work and how you can make things better. But I didn't know a whole bunch, right? But, you know, and then you depend upon people. You depend upon consultants, which sometimes could be great, sometimes could be atrocious. You depend upon attorneys. You depend upon, there's a lot of people you have to kind of put your, you know, your trust in because you have no choice. But you got to quickly vet, get in, get out. If you made a bad decision, get out, right? Yeah. It wasn't the right, it wasn't the right people, move on. Because that's the only way you're going to learn. So, I mean, now, again, you talk about, you know, it's been since 2005. And again, that wasn't a day-to-day thing. I wasn't doing this on a day-to-day basis in 2005. I didn't really start going day-to-day, like like hardcore day-to-day until 2014. Wow. Or probably 2013 is when I really started the, the date, like, okay, I'm going to start pushing other things to the side, and this is what I'm going to be doing full-time. Because I had so many other little things that I was working on. It was full-time in real estate and real estate development, et cetera. So I saw the I saw the opportunity, and I just you know I just dove in. That's where a lot of these things start, right? You know, you just um, sometimes knowing too much about something can be be the detriment because then you're not you're not open to learning stuff. Right? I I totally agree. You know, uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, obviously famous podcaster, he did an interview with Nick Kakonis, who's the um, one of the co-owners of Alinea Restaurant out in Chicago. His business partner is Chef Grant Ackett's. And he was talking a lot about, uh, in that interview, uh, he actually did two interviews, and the first one talks a lot about how the guiding principle, uh, when they opened Alinea, their first restaurant together, and he came to it as an outsider, uh, much like you, he said, I just kept asking why. Like, every time they said, well, we need this, we need that, he said, why, why? 
And he said, you know, 70% of the time it was like, well, because that's the most efficient way to do things. That's the best way to do a kitchen. That's this. He's like, but then, you know, another 30 or 40% of the time, uh, it was like, you know, the answer was, well, I don't know. That's just the way it's always been done in the restaurant industry. And he said, okay, so why? And can we change it? Can we make it more efficient? Or can we find something else that's better for the same price? Or can we make it better even though it's more expensive because it's going to make for a better experience? And, you know, he was just talking about everything from the tables they order to the kind of silverware to the the uh, the glassware to do we do linens or not linens or, you know, how do we charge? And, you know, they started the, the talk system where they started selling tickets uh, instead of booking reservations. He was like, you know, they were dealing with all these no-show fees and the, the food was so expensive to, to prep ahead of time that we were a no-show ended up costing us hundreds of dollars per uh, per cover. He said, okay, well then sell tickets. That way, you know, if they don't come, that's fine. You know, you're going to go to a Billy Joel concert. Billy Joel's still going to play whether you're in that seat or not. Like, I'm still going to make the food and I still got paid. You know, Billy Joel still gets paid if you uh, if you don't use the ticket. You know, so he just came at it, you know, uh, you know, just asking that question, why? And I think the key to it was that his role as an outsider, um, I find that a lot of the, the people that I interview on this show, uh, some of the really interesting conversations I have are with outsiders, people who came from uh, from architecture or, or publishing or PR, and they, they just kind of came to it and it just brought a different way of thinking uh, to the industry, which I think is refreshing. You, you bring up a, a pretty pretty big point, which I just didn't think to mention before. You know, in the first X amount of years of doing this, I was just kind of like, okay, well, that's what that's what you do in the restaurant business. Well, when we started building your restaurants, well, we need we need the kitchen that big. We need a thing this big. We need this like this. We need this, you know, all these little things, right? And some of them made a lot of sense. Like, we don't have any boots, right? We have a lot of tables that you can move around, so it makes it very easy to play Tetris on the weekends, right, when they have a 12-top or something like that. Yeah, for sure. But then it starts to come when you start building restaurants, for example, and you start to see the price go up and up and up. A couple of reasons. You know, A, it's not their money. Sometimes people are just like, oh, I'd like to have a bigger office. I'd like to have, you know, you know, more space in the kitchen, more room here. And after a while, that's when I started getting involved saying, why do we have a kitchen that's, you know, now 300 square feet more than the other kitchen? It's not going to be any faster. It's not going to be any better. Tell me how it helps. Well, of course, they would tell you how it helps. But I would talk to another group and say, wait a minute, their place is even smaller. They're making it work. And then I revert everybody back to our original location where the actual kitchen was like 10 by 12. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can do 500 covers out of 10 by 12, then why do we need a thousand square feet to do 600 covers? I just don't, I, you know, so you do get a little bit of, you know, with, to, to your point about the, the uh, gentleman you were speaking about. You do get a lot of pushback, and a lot of people go, "Well, you know, you're not the restaurant business. You don't understand the pain. You don't understand how it is to have tickets lined up at, you know, 11 tickets or you know, 100 tickets, whatever it's going to be, and everybody yelling at me." I said, "No, you know, you're probably right, but I do know how it is when we do have all that stuff, and the business is really good, and you can't make money because you're overbuilt. You didn't get enough seats into place." You built it bigger than the last, but oh, if we just have more seats, we'll do more people. It doesn't work either, right? So we quickly learned, you know, I quickly questioned a lot of stuff early on because our restaurants were, we were starting to look at bigger and bigger spots. And when you realize, well, at least what we realized, is the smaller and more intimate, the more you can see, the more vibe it had. It's breakfast. It's a place where people come to congregate. You have a 5,000 square foot place, which works in some communities, right? It just felt very different. And you do have to push back, and you're not always the good guy, 
And you know, I've been accused many times of like, hey, what do, what do you know? You don't you don't work in the kitchen. Like then the kitchen, I can I don't have to work in the kitchen for six years to realize that you can make them smaller. At the end of the day, real estate got expensive. You, know, you take where you are. I mean, real estate is absolutely insane. Bonkers. Now, we're going to press pause and go back to January and before, right? I have no idea what the market's going to look like now, but um, you can't keep building bigger and bigger and bigger. You have to get smarter and smarter because, you know, rents were going up. Everything was going up. Competition was going up. But even so, you have to go back to that model now. Because even though there's going to be less restaurants for the next two years, they'll come back. Yeah. And they'll come back stronger, faster, smarter, with more data and more technology. So you just a good point. You just gotta you gotta keep questioning things even if you're not the uh, if you're not the good guy. Yeah. Uh, you just brought up technology, and I want to. I think that's a good opportunity to segue over to that. Um, how has? I mean, obviously, you guys just navigated through this whole COVID nineteen crisis, and I assume you're starting to open back up or you're probably already open back up down in North Carolina. Where are you guys with that? We're still at 50% in North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, and, you know, again, you can only do so much with that. Right. If you wanted to talk, you know, straight COVID stuff, I mean, people are coming out more. It's coming It's it's, it's coming around. If you don't have a massive restaurant, this is where having a big restaurant comes in handy because you can social distance even more. Um, but you had to, look, you had to go and do other things from a, from a, technology standpoint in my opinion technology to some extent is like crack or cocaine right? it's very addictive yeah it can be really fun but you really got to watch what you do because there's so much technology coming at you from so many angles everybody can save you so much money you really got to kind of pick a couple things and then run your business there's only so much technology you can do because i see it i get probably 15 emails a day about i can save you money on you know oil removal, I can save you money on your lights, I can save you money on AI, I can save you money on your seats. I mean, you have to be disciplined in the approach of technology. Now, we did things immediately. We, we went to contactless payment. We did online reservations. We did, you know, curbside. We did curbside pickup before curbside pickup. You know, we went out in front of one of our restaurants and literally put up signs, no parking, right? And then three days later, everybody had it. Everybody just figured it out, right? People were pretty, pretty smart. Um, right. We didn't have online ordering. We rolled out online ordering in four days. Um, you know, breakfast is not the thing you online order as much, but now it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> what we've been cautious about is the amount of technology that's out there. There's only so much that your group can handle, that you can learn and that you can do. And if you if you got one or two locations, um, you know, there's a lot of technology you just don't need. Yeah. I mean, my opinion, this is my opinion, right? I just, because I see it every day. You have you have you know you have a half an hour of your time that I can explain this concept that concept. But I'm telling you, if I if I gave everybody half an hour of the time, it'd be out for the next 18 months. Right. Because it's just everyone. And so you know what? And within all those calls, there's somebody with some great technology. But you have to have the time, the discipline, the ability to go through it all and figure it out. So I do caution all this. You know, technology is just one of these things that everyone talks about as if it's going to it's going to change your trajectory of you serving. Your food. At the end of the day, if you're in the restaurant business, you're serving steak or Mexican or beer, whatever it is, you got to be really good at that. The technology stuff then comes, right? So if, if you're already killing it on that side, then you like, then you start to invest in that stuff. But I see way too much where people come in and just start picking out this technology. Yeah. And you know they have something that has a thousand things they can do, and they use two of them. So what are the you know what sort of systems or protocols went in uh, in response to COVID-19 that you think are now going to be with you 
for the future? Like, like what are the things that, what did you learn through this and go like, oh, I didn't know that we could do this, but we did this. And actually that's a really profitable arm of our business. And we're going to keep that and grow it. I mean, can you think of any of those at the moment? We believed that the third party delivery before COVID was um, a big problem. It's a great service, but a big problem. Yeah. Very big problem. Now, I've been around, you know, in New York, I remember working in banking, you know, and, and getting Grubhub back in the day, which is still around. And they would deliver to you at your office at, at eight o'clock, right? When you're still working. Great. It provides great service. The problem is they, they do collect all your data. They do control um, what money you're going to make and not going to make. And if you didn't have first party delivery going into this, you wound up paying a lot of money for you know, DoorDash and and again, these are great services, but if you want to control your destiny, you've got to find a way to, um, to work around some of these things that are becoming the norm. And I think first-party delivery, meaning owning your own delivery system, is a big deal. So we started doing that, and we're looking to go deeper and deeper into that because I don't think that goes away. There's certain things that are going to go away, right? The idea that restaurants are never going to be where they were before is just a farce. You can't buy this on Amazon. Everything is based upon food and beverage, especially in a place like New York City. Where do you want to meet? Okay, let's meet at a Thai shop. Yeah. <laughs> no, you meet at a bar. You meet at a restaurant. You meet at a lounge. At a club. You meet somewhere that's going to be, you know, you're exchanging ideas and talking and getting whatever. And then you have a drink in front of you. You have a coffee in front of you. You have food. That's not going away. So for those who think that it's like going to be Amazon out, they're out of their mind. That's why if you're in the restaurant business, you got to take your, you know, you got to embrace the punch in the face that you just got. And you've got to find a way to get, you know, get back on the saddle and be ready for 2021. Because I do believe it's going to come back very strong. Because when you take a country like America and then it runs like it's North Korea for six months, people are ready to explode, right? They want to get out, <laughs> right? Right. Especially in a place like New York where it's, um, that's what life's all about. You go to parks, you eat, you drink, you go out. I don't know that many people, who, you know, I lived in New York for many, many years. We cooked, but... Most of the time, get you out. So there are things that will stay, right? Online ordering will be always be bigger. You know, pickup will always be bigger. You know, contactless payment, online um, online reservation systems before you get there, paper menus, digital menus. I think a lot of that stuff, you know, just stays. There's also a lot of stuff that people don't understand that costs the restaurant a lot of money. All this extra PPE and all the cleaning stuff you do every time someone goes to the bathroom, wiping down the the, the doorknob, and there's a lot of extra stuff that may not ever go away, right? Depending upon, unfortunately, the yeah. rhetoric of your local municipalities, right? Um, that's what's going to dictate it, not who becomes president in November, but what that municipality believes, right? If they believe COVID is going to go on for the next 415 years, you're pretty screwed. Yeah, listen, we're in New York City where we uh, restaurants are allowed to serve outside, but we still aren't allowed back inside. And it is, uh, and we're looking as the weather is going to start turning colder in the next few weeks. I mean, people are uh, are freaking out, um, understandably. Uh, the gyms, you know, fitness industry here, gyms, big box gyms were allowed to reopen in New York City, uh, but uh, group fitness classes were not allowed. So, you know, Soul Cycle, yoga, boxing, you know, any of that, they're not allowed to reopen, and it's absolutely devastating that industry as well. You know, I can speak of that in two ways, right? So on a national level, when the ABC stores or liquor stores are essential and a gym is not or a restaurant is not, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, I don't know. I, you, you can't fix stupid. People got to just have their own uprising. I mean, 
you know, New York is a, uh, you know, it's the best place in the country for food. It's always been. Anything you want, any time of the day, any time of night you can get. They are single-handedly destroying the city. I mean, it took 20 years to make it to sell, or 25, whatever it was, to make it the safest city in the country. Then a couple of months, it's one of the worst. It's unbelievable. And it goes, you know, that's a lot of things going on, but restaurants not being open because of what they were, again, back to rhetoric, depending upon where you are, right? It's, yeah. it, it's very different in another state. But New York, you know, it's not just the fact that people locally can't eat. People go to the city from other, you know, other, you know, as you would hear the bridge and tunnel crowd to go out for it, for theater closed, go out for restaurants closed, go out to see the museums are closed. Everything's like, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, listen, it has to be resolved because this isn't going to, this will not go away in, in 27 years from now. Someone's going to say, oh, I can't go out tonight. I have COVID just like you have the flu. It's bad. It's done a lot of damage. It's not good. You can't really dispute that stuff. But at the same time, people got to move on, right? If you're if you're in danger, stay home. Move into a place that's you know that that you can be out in the fresh air. That's why everyone's leaving New York, right? Because you know of some of these issues. But I really hope that everybody comes back rather quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, New York City offers a really interesting case study for what's going on right now because. So you've got everybody working from home, not in the office, right? So you've got big companies now rethinking how much office space they need. And so what do these big skyscrapers do with all, you know, if a company has 10 floors in a skyscraper and they go down to five, you know, how are they going to fill those additional five? And then what happens with all the, you know, the subways and the sweet green and the dig-ins and, you know, all these lunch spots uh, that are on the ground floor of all these buildings where everybody goes to get lunch in the day, well, then those places are all going to be devastated as well. And then if people aren't in the city every day, entertaining clients every day, you know, who's going to who's going to restaurants? If people, you know, are only kind of come in the city, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, you know, how can a restaurant, uh, how can a nice restaurant survive? You know, you can't pay your bills on two nights a week. Um, there are like big, big kind of like existential questions uh, that this city is going to face and, you know, hospitality industry is going to face here. Well, there is the great migration going on, right? So you have it from the, from, from the five boroughs to Eastern Long Island, to Westchester, to, to New Jersey, but then you have the bigger migration from people in the Northeast going to Southeast, right? Or people from, the, from, from California going to Idaho and going to uh, Texas. People are moving in droves like they've never seen because of the decisions that some of these people are making, right? That people have elected. Yeah, well, right? you, can't blame anybody and no one can be blamed i mean people elected certain people whether you like them or you don't like them uh, and the only way to change that is to change people um but for the guy that has a restaurant that can't open their restaurant right now and the landlord that's not working with them that's a tough place to be because people don't get that there's real people here like the landlord's a real guy it's probably not the biggest read in the world it's probably just the guy that owns a building or two and he, he needs to pay his bills and then the restaurant yeah. can't open but he the landlord wants the bills paid those two people are in, a, are in a conflict. And at the end of the day, that's a problem that, that no one's fixing. And then, of course, we have no, you know, there's another, another round of PPP. It's all becomes political. Forget about what side you're on. It's unfortunate that it all becomes such a, almost a game, that there's real people with real lives, with real businesses that are real mouths to feed that are not being taken care of. And it's a disgrace. You know, it's a disgrace. And in certain places have done a good job and certain places have not. And it's a shame because it's, you know some of the stuffs you know you can't take it back. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's that we're in this um, you know we're in this spot right now where it's like 
you know, I think everybody, you know, got through the worst of it and we watched the numbers go down and down and down. And then we're like, okay, let's go, let's go. And, uh, and we're, and we're still being held at the starting line. And it's, um, uh, and again, the, the two industries that I work uh, most predominantly in, which are, uh, hospitality and, uh, and fitness uh, are just like, we're just still at the starting line and everyone else is, you know, a mile down the road, 10 miles down the road. It's, uh, it's definitely weird. So you guys are uh, are a little bit ahead of, uh, I guess, certain parts of the country, certainly here in New York. Uh, what did you guys learn in reopening and getting to the place where you're at now? What what sort of lessons can you impart to, to other markets, uh, people who are about to go through the, the kind of reopening, relaunch process? A big thing for us was like explaining, you know, through social media, what we were doing, how we were doing it, what steps we were taking. We did what was asked and more. Because at the end of the day, coming in, you know, coming into a restaurant, sitting down and eating, is asking a lot of some people. So we had to make people feel safe and show them, right? There was a lot of things that we we took everything off the tables, we distance everything. Every time someone stands up, we wipe everything down, wipe down, you know, people walk in and out of the, the restaurant, we wipe it down, the paper menus, everything that you could feel safe about, right? If you didn't have a mask, we'll give you a mask create an enormous amount of outside seating if you can. Again, independent of New York City, there's only so far you can go. But you can get a lot of um, outside seating. That really helps. And just making sure everybody's kind of following the, the the mask mandate at this point. And I use the word mandate. I mean, it's not a law. This is what people would like you to do. But from our perspective, we want to we want to protect the, the, the patrons. We want to protect the, the people working inside. And we want to make sure that everybody just feels safe, right, for now. Right, I, I, as much as we possibly can, so that people come in, people feel safe to order, people feel safe to come and sit down and have, you know, try to feel some normalcy, and that's what we're providing—just some normalcy. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not curing cancer here. We're not curing COVID. We're just creating an experience that people really want to have. I, I'll tell you what was very interesting for those that are reopening and opening a new restaurant. We've opened a couple of new restaurants from scratch, brand new that were supposed to open before they didn't. And what we learned was the excitement for a new restaurant is so big right now because there's nothing exciting, right? People are being told to stay home. Kids can't go to school. You can't go to work. You can't go to amusement park. Can't go to you know. You can't do a lot of things. So when there's something new and exciting, you get a lot of attention, right? So from a marketing perspective, it's your, it's the it's that time to you know double down on people's attention. You have their attention more than you think. Um, People looking at their phones more. People looking, you know, on social media more. I mean, up until May, I never had a social media account. I have one account. It's a LinkedIn account. <laughs> I never wanted, you know, you know I, I didn't like the noise, right? That's my personal choice, my personal opinion. There's a lot of noise on that stuff. But I will say that, you know, you've got people's attention. And when you have something positive, they want to see it. People are yearning for more positive stuff. And we get a chance to be that, that positive piece. Yeah, especially with what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because we talk about uh, so much uh, on this show about how we're not selling food, we're selling an experience, and that is very much still the case now. Where um, this idea of you know giving people some sort of normalcy, um, I, I think is uh, you know again it's not curing cancer, but it, there's something noble in that. There's something very generous about that, uh, which I love. I'm glad you said that. So. Um, Okay, so we're going to come through this, and we're going to get on the other side, and I want you to, you know, 
provide a little wisdom here. So there are people listening to this um, this podcast for sure who are getting ready to open their own restaurant. That's the whole thing, right? There are all these people on the sidelines, and now rent's going to go down. The, the barrier of entry um, is going to be lowered, and people are going to be able to get in um, simply simply because of the nature of where we're at. So you know, everything you've learned, all that you've kind of experienced over the last 15 years, what what sort of advice would you pass on to somebody who's going to open their first place, you know, in 2021? Number one, don't build out a restaurant, right? Definitely only be looking for a second generation. Don't get addicted to you have to build this thing from scratch. That's the difference of $700,000 build out and a $100,000 build out. There's going to be a lot of second generation spaces. I'm not sure. I mean, in certain parts of the country, rents will come down. I think in some parts of the country, rents may just be where they are, be stabilized, or they give a little free rent. I think people are going to want to keep their rents close to where they are or will negotiate. But the biggest upside is second generation space. Um, taking cold, dark shells right now would be just a mistake, especially if you're not someone who has 25 restaurants and a balance sheet that can support it. Right. Um, there's no reason for it. It's, it's, it's like, why take the risk if you don't need to? Second gens are great. So find someone where, so find spaces where the infrastructure is already there. The kitchen's built out. It's got the ventilation. It's got the hood, all of that. Right. Exactly. Because, you know, it doesn't matter what the kitchen looks like. The outside, you can always put your flare on it. You know, if it has 91 seats, but you really wanted 107 seats, deal with it. If you really needed this, this you know, you really were dreaming that it was going to be a higher ceiling, but it's a little lower, deal with it. Right. Because, again, it's all about the experience you provide, not about what it looks like. Yeah. The nicer it looks is great. The nicer it looks, the more expensive it costs. And you can get there if you're in fine dining. You can, you can still get there with lots of uh, decor. That's the number one thing. You know, we I would not look at anything right now for a new restaurant that is a cold, dark shell, meaning you have to build it out, even with a big tenant improvement allowance. Because tenant improvement allowance is also going to come with a higher rent. The more tenant improvement allowance you get, the higher the rent's going to be. So your upside is in these close, is in these close spots. And to be, right. to, you know, to be frugal about it and make sure that you um, uh, negotiate and you get good terms. Talk about, you know, second rounds of COVID, what's in those leases, get some protection in leases, because that's where the problem's been. It's going to be hard because landlords are not going to want to protect. I wouldn't sign a lease if someone's going to say that you have no protection on another COVID piece. Because why would you want a gun in your head, right? You, you can't, you have to have protections. What I also say from a positive perspective is going into 21, I mean, as I said before, you have to pick a side, right? I'm of the belief that 21, 22, they're going to be just booming years for the restaurant business, mainly because of, of, of the unfortunate destruction that has caused, the amount of restaurants that are gone, the amount of money being pumped into the economy. You know, it, it does come down a little bit to who gets elected, but you can never run your life and your business based upon politics. And you've got to assume that once it all clears up, you're going to have, you know, 30% less restaurants with the same amount of people vying for, um, for the food. So you've got to be positive about the outlook for the restaurant business. I am, right? I, I mean, today, do I think that it's, uh, you know, people should go running out and opening all these restaurants? If you have a chance, you know, sit on the sidelines a little bit. Pick your, pick your time, pick your place, pick your deal. You have a lot of chance to pick right now. That will not stay around. Just like in 2011 and 12 when we were doing deals, you know, you can name the deal. You know, up until, you know, up until March, the, you couldn't name your deal. It was big rents, small tenant improvement allowance, massive guarantees. That's all going to change. you got to be disciplined now. You can't sign these big guarantees. And I'm getting into the weeds here, but this is what's getting people in trouble. New York City is different because they have key man clauses where most of the time, 
they just pay in an upfront key man and they just they close their clothes. Most of America is a is a you know guarantee, personal guarantee, corporate guarantee, and you really got to watch those and how you sign those going into a um, you know an epidemic world. I mean a pandemic world because we don't know what what's yet to come. Um, so you got to just be prepared, talk to attorneys, make sure you have a really good real estate attorney so that you're protected in case something like this goes down. Because a lot of people were not. A lot of people had force majeure clauses that weren't good or, you know, they had clauses where they, you know, they, they were allowed to close their store, but they still had to pay the rent. Right. So leases are going to change dramatically. That's where people should be focusing, you know. Again, that's not the sexy stuff. That is the non-sexy stuff. But it's the stuff that saves you when things like this go wrong. No, I think it's I think it's really great advice. Um, and, and that's so much of what uh, you just said. It's not the not the sexy stuff. It's so much of the stuff that I try to talk about here, which is that like you got to get your you know your ducks in a row um, here so that you can have the freedom to do the stuff that you really want to do, to do the sexy stuff, to to talk about the kind of stakes you're serving and the the kind of line caught fish and and all that on and on and on. Now, listen, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate you carving out uh, the hour uh, to give to me here. Um, what other uh, any other bits of advice, any other kind of wisdom you can pipe down the mountain to to people uh, listening? What what uh, what is next for famous toastery? Tell us. Uh, Tell us before we go. Well, I mean, right now, if you're, if, if you're you know, in this in this business, you want to get into the business, um, whether it be hospitality, fitness, whatever, you got to start today, right? Next year will be here sooner than you know, and you'll wish today that you started a year ago, right? You wish a year ago that you still. You got to plan. You got to start now. This is where the opportunities are. You know, for us, we. Um, we see a massive opportunity for expansion and, and franchising, um, you know, at a, at a growth that makes a lot of sense. We're, we are not of this idea that we need to have X amount of locations by X amount of time. I think that's the craziest statements I've ever heard when people want to have 100 stores by X day. You need to have profitable stores. You need to have profitable businesses, profitable restaurants, right? Um, and make sure you're always digging deep to make sure that you're creating value if you have franchises. You, know, you have a fiduciary responsibility to create value, paying your, your franchise fee every week. Um, or your investors, you have a, you have a responsibility to, to do the best that you possibly can in the environment that you're dealt, right? And you just gotta keep learning and treat people with empathy and fairly because you just don't know where you're gonna be or where they're gonna be in time and it's, you know, people's what makes the world go around. Yeah, for sure. It's the beauty of what we do is that we just, we get to take care of people for a living. Um, Robert, I appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, where can people go to learn more about you and uh, and the company and, and all that you guys are doing? Well, we can always check us out on uh, famoustoastery.com. And then you can always uh, find me on LinkedIn, Famous Toastery. Um, probably a lot of our Maynards there. So um, Robert Maynard, just uh, search via Famous Toastery. And um, look for us opening up lo- more locations near you, I hope. Excellent. I think it's probably as good a place as any to leave it. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Chip, thank you so much, man. Appreciate what you do as well. It's my pleasure. I hope you got a lot out of today's interview. I think what I find so refreshing and energizing about uh, talking with Robert uh, was that uh, how opinionated he is, uh, that he's got views, he's got ideas, he's not afraid to share them. Uh, I think he's obviously learned a lot. He came at this industry uh, with a great deal of humility. I know... um, uh, many of you out there are in a similar position. You came to it at a certain point in life, and like like most things, right, you don't know what you don't know until you know it. 
Um, and I love kind of hearing uh, Robert's words as he kind of uh, talks about that journey that he was on. Uh, if you have any questions for Robert, uh, obviously you uh, know where to find him. Uh, the links are all in the show notes. If you got questions for me, you know where to find me. Of course, Chip at ChipClose.com, C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E. Uh, I will leave you with one final request uh, to go drop a uh, review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, all those five-star ratings really do make a difference. They just help us find people who are looking for content like this. Uh, help me grow the restaurant strategy community. Uh, as always, I appreciate you being here. I will see you next time. 